0: This is 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade, a retrospective podcast brought to you by utilitymuffinlabs.com. Welcome to another episode of 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade. My name is Nathan, and today Bob and I are joined by two very special guests, Matthew and Clara, from Red Moon Role Playing from Onyx Path Publishing, to talk to us about Chicago by Night and The Sacrifice, uh, a new actual play podcast over at redmoonroleplaying.com. They're on their second episode. So let's get right down to it. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy this interview. Welcome, Clara, and welcome, Matthew, to our podcast. How are you today?
1: Very good. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us.
0: Absolutely.
2: Bloody, bloody rotten. (laughs) Our pleasure, I'm sure. It's nice to be back, as ever. Nathan, Bob, lovely to be invited back here to appear on your show, which I love, and I listen to semi-religiously. I don't (laughs) make (laughs) offerings to it or anything, but uh, I like to say the occasional prayer, uh, And hear your beneficent voices (laughs) raining out of my headphones. (laughs)
0: Well, I don't really know what to think about that.
2: (laughs) Take it as the compliment that it means to be.
0: Earlier, I had asked if it was possible to be professionally British.
2: And I suppose the thing is, there's a lot of people, not a lot of people, there's a few morons who think that I affect this accent, that I'm not actually British, that I adopted this for... um, for YouTube, uh, so that people might take me more seriously. But no, this is my voice. I am from Britain, and you've just got to live with i Are sure
1: it's your voice, though?
2: Well, my voice has gone through many changes in my life, as most men do. <laughs> but... Uh, but it's um, also gone through various regions, and it's, it's sped up, of course. Uh, I, I used to speak very slowly when I was younger. I guess there's a certain amount of affectation to the way that I, I speak, but I wouldn't say that I put on any airs or grace. No, but you said you spoke slower, so I, I didn't know you time-traveled when you were <laughs> <laughs> mm. That that was what was wrong. I was a true brouhaha <laughs> as a young boy, and then I grew out of being such a silly bloodline. <laughs>
0: Both of you are your contributors to the Vampire of the Masquerade community, your contributors to Classic World of Darkness, the Chronicles of Darkness, and a bunch of other things. But podcasting has kind of become this adjacent thing, and both of you are now kind of stepping fully into that world. So has it been a difficult adjustment to go from writer, storyteller, contributor to podcasting personality?
1: I think it's, uh, it's different for like, um, both of us. We, um, we represent different roles in the podcast. We're in currently with Red Bull role-playing. Um, I'm the storyteller. So for me, I, it's like running a, 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 any other game, really. <laughs> it's, it's just keeping it in mind that it's meant for entertainment purposes as well. So for me, that means just doing an extra good job storytelling, um, doing you know, a little extra research, um, making sure that you uh, speak clearly, um, all those things. It, but it's not more different than running a game at a convention or for friends, at least not for me.
0: Have you noticed any difficulty? Or I, I guess I should ask you, are you used to running a game exclusively like in this scenario, like an online You know, where maybe you're not face to face with the person or is that really not any difference to you as a storyteller?
1: No, I'm not. I'm not used to that at all. I prefer I always prefer to look my players in the eye um, because it just I I just like to be able to read people and see their reaction and base my storytelling on that. And that can be difficult when you you can't see them, (laughs) quite frankly. Um, so it, yeah, it's it's different. Um, it's a little harder, I'd say.
3: You have quite the professional background, and not just role playing. In fact, you were you were a nurse. Is that accurate?
1: That is correct. Yeah.
3: Do you still nurse, or is that like a used to?
1: No, I, I do still full time nurse.
3: God bless you. Well, thank you. <laughs> That's well. I I only know I have come from a family of nurses, and I know that back to back twelve hour shifts is a reality. Yeah, and and kind of going full tilt. So to do that, plus writer, plus all this, that's wow. That's
1: I don't have a spare time. <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, do you feel that that experience it's, it affects your when you write?
1: Oh yeah, as like as as latest as today, um, I had a scenario with uh, it wasn't my patient, but I was sitting in our break room five minutes before I left work. And suddenly, I see a guy without shirt, his arm in a cast, um, running down the hallway. And it's a patient. And it takes a moment before I realize what is going on. And I get up immediately, and I just see five nurses just running after him. And it's so surreal, because his, his arm is sedated. So it's just kind of, although it's in a cast, it's kind of just like flopping beside him. And it looks so unrealistic because the human body doesn't do that normally when you run. Um, but it's just scenarios I kind of use in my body horror when I describe that. Um, because I just have an experience with the human body in all kinds of states. So I, I, I really do use that. And I use that when I describe blood as well because I see it on a daily basis. I use it when I describe human emotion, human psychology... It's, um, you experience everything in a hospital, every single kind of emotion from thrill to complete depression, from anger to everything. So yeah, I definitely use it. It's one of my big sources of inspiration.
0: So I I definitely want to ask you both more about the actual play podcast that you're doing, but I want to ask you first just about... Chicago by night in general. And, you know, feel free to chime in as, as you see fit, but you know, what were some of the biggest challenges writing and contributing to the book? You know, what did your research process look like? What were things you definitely wanted to keep and stuff that you definitely wanted to get rid of?
2: Okay. So one of the biggest challenges for me, uh, well, it wasn't so much a challenge, but one of my objectives was to, uh, staff a book diversely, Not to tick any boxes, but because Chicago is an incredibly diverse city. I've been to Chicago on a handful of occasions, and I I love it. It's my favorite American city. Uh, There's just so much to do, so many different people, so many different places to eat. And it's a city with a real soul to it, To, to my mind. As a tourist, I know I'm only visiting. But it was very important to me that the book reflected that that with the cast of characters that was presented in Chicago by night, you could actually see a pretty accurate representation of the kinds of people you'd see in Chicago, let alone the kinds of vampires. And so uh, a decent portion of the writers are from Chicago or the Chicagoland area or uh, or states adjacent. Uh, so we've it got, even got a couple from Milwaukee uh, and other places in uh, Wisconsin. But we also have um uh, some writers of color. we have lots of um lady writers, lots of uh, th- th- we have some trans writers uh, The point again not being to fulfill any kind of quota but to get accurate voice for the book Now we couldn't staff entirely from with writers from Chicago because I don't know that many couldn't reach out to that many, but that's fine also because I wanted people who. I wanted people that knew Chicago, wanted people that knew Vampire, wanted people that knew V5, and all kinds of uh, ingredients in that pot, and eventually that's what got brought together. And if I can say anything for Chicago by Night, because I think it has been incredibly successful, it's been incredibly well-received, and I have to be very grateful to the fan community for receiving it so well. Uh, I put that in large part, but not entirely, down to the excellent writers on the book. Uh, I know that's a very easy thing to say, but the writers, the editor, layout artist—well, uh, and our artists, but layout as well. I know I'm it giving the Oscar speech right now, but <laughs> this is something a lot of a lot of um, readers of RPGs don't ever consider. It's the layout. Now, we at Onyx Path had um, had to emulate, but not directly copy, the layout of V5 and V5 Anarch and V5 Camera. Now, as I know the two of you have read those three books, Mm -hmm. you'll know that the layout of those three is in no way identical. And one could even say it's eclectic in each book. Uh, There's there's definitely a theme, but we couldn't shoot straight for that because we weren't that company and we're not White Wolf. Uh, we have access to some of their same assets, but we're not the same artists. And so our uh, art director, Mike Cheney, who never receives nearly enough credit because he uh, does the layout on pretty much every one of our books, uh, was able to make Chicago by Night feel like a V5 book, which was no small feat as it's the first V5 book not being produced by White Wolf while also feeling visually distinct and and striking and beautiful. And for my money, and I've worked on all all of the V5 books released so far, and I know that there aren't that many, but for my money, Chicago is the most beautiful V5 book, perhaps the most beautiful vampire book next to Beckett's Jihad Diary uh, that I think has ever been released. Um, So... There were lots of challenges in the book's construction from a writing perspective, in the book's construction from an art perspective. And in terms of what we wanted to drop from previous editions, that was pretty simple. We wanted to get rid of a lot of the gross stereotypes. Uh, We wanted to get rid of any, I guess, outlier characters that very much existed on the fringe of vampire so i think gulfora was a succubus that existed in chicago by night first edition and second edition um there wasn't really a place for her in v5 um and i think there may even be an abomination in chicago by night second edition so a werewolf Mm -hmm. vampire so we obviously cut back on a lot of those things and i think that makes the book stronger because it makes it a book about vampires Uh, which should be what the first city sourcebook for Vampire the Masquerade is. Uh, And I guess the big final thing, the thing I chose to add to Chicago, it was my proposition, I'm prepared to take full responsibility for it, is the La Sombra. Um, People, some people, like to criticize the marketing strategy, and I use quotation marks for that, of releasing one clan per sourcebook but it wasn't a marketing strategy. It was my idea. I wanted to put the La Sombra in Chicago because I wanted the book to not only have a playable option in it, but also to have something that was important to the meta plot in it so that people who weren't just interested in Chicago still got something from the book that they could use. And the idea of the La Sombra migrating, at least in part, to the Camarilla was something myself and Ken Height and Martin Erickson and the rest had discussed during V5's uh, development. I wasn't initially in favor of it, I'll be honest. Uh, that wasn't the clan I voted for <laughs> uh, for admission into uh, into the Camarilla. But with Chicago by Night, that was something, again, that needed to be handled very sensitively because the La Sombra are a very popular clan. And again, I think that we, we hit that mark. Uh, we gave just cause for them to defect from the Sabbat. Uh, we presented their powers in ways that are interesting and not all anime with shadow tentacles and things like that. And they're now actual shadows. And for me, that's quite important. But we also, and this is um, Clara's big contribution to the book, uh, put a story in that book which is around 20,000 words in length can take you several sessions to play through which goes through your player characters making the decision essentially you you get the deciding vote on whether the la sombra get admission to the camera at least at the local level of central or midwest USA um, and it's Incredibly difficult to to write a pre written uh, Vampire the Masquerade chronicle or story. Uh, they're a bit shorter than Chronicles because Vampire is a social game by nature, and that means players tend to play up to their character. And that means they may well go off the page far more likely than they will in a DD pre written adventure, for instance, where f- for many. Chapters in such adventures, it's about what you can kill. In Vampire, there's so many, uh, so many decisions you have to make, so many things you have to discuss that you can very easily go off piste. But in this chronicle, this story that Clara wrote, she really hit the nail on the head. She, uh, she provided a fantastic array of optional encounters linear linearity interesting characters and well clara what what do you think about that
1: well thank you (laughs) first of all uh thank you very much um it was a we we both contributed to that to be honest um it was a process of us both working together and creating uh what is probably one of my best written pieces ever um, and one of the pieces I'm most proud of. And Matthew was an excellent developer. He's always been an excellent developer. Um, and by the power combined, uh, we we just we really <laughs> created something great. Um, I think it's funny that you, or it's interesting that you mention um, representing diversity in Clan Sombra. Because that was one of my goals when I initially wrote uh, The Sacrifice, because we have our two, uh, I guess we can call them two main antagonists. Mellenkov um, and Sierra. And they're both so different. Although they come from the same clan. So I wanted both sides to be represented. I wanted the humane, the the, um, the sane side, the normal side, the down-to-earth, the... Yeah, the high in humanity side of La Sombra to be represented. Uh, to show that they can actually be a contributing and great factor for the Camarilla. And I wanted the absolutely bad shit insane part of La Sombra to <laughs> to be represented. Because it's it's important to show that what you can actually do with a clan, it doesn't always have to be the stereotype. Um, but it was definitely a Writing the sacrifice was a an a, a terrifying experience for me, because I I was writing in such an important piece. I was helping changing vampire lore, and that is something I've never thought I ever would. Being a fan of the franchise for years,
0: I was going to ask if if that you know going from a consumer of the material, someone who loves it as a fan to someone who's affecting the actual story like how does that feel like what what is that even like
1: it's yeah it's honestly it's surreal when you come into it you are as i said you are terrified well i was um because you want to create something that is worth people's time honestly you want them to like what you did um and you want to do the piece justice and it's I went into this being very humble i i um was called in as a, actually an emergency writer um so I didn't have a lot of time to research. I didn't have all the time in the world to put my head into the project, so I had to do it pretty quickly um but again, uh me and Matthew worked together on this and and um and because of that, we were able to create something that is really really good um so I I don't know. I just I wrote what I would like to play if I were a player reading this book. I wrote a game or a chronicle that is open world. So it's very sandboxy. And what that means is you can more or less do what you want to in a chronicle. Um, and as a storyteller, you can choose to run it very strictly or you can choose to run it... Um, incredibly loose and let your players do what they want i always have um, several different options Um, if the players doesn't want to follow the storyline exactly so and and that's one of my philosophies as a storyteller i don't want to force the players into following a storyline i want it to be free play and you should as a storyteller follow your players you should never lead your players you should never force them into anything you should create your story around your players and that's something i really want to reflect in the sacrifice and i think we managed that
3: i for one want to tell you reading the sacrifice well i want to, a couple things i'll admit number one i'm a diehard Lasombra fan and when i initially read the Lasombra uh, oblivion change I, I challenged myself to just put it on hold <laughs> because immediately my my gut reaction was they, it was mysterious we never defined the abyss Many people thought they knew. It was abyss mysticism. And I was like, it's called oblivion now. And then I took a drink. And I came back. It's like, (laughs) okay, look at it again. And I sat there and I went, honestly, talking to Matthew, it was benefit of the doubt, keep an open mind. That's the one thing I took when looking at it. I was shocked when I read that he didn't write The Sacrifice because I had felt that with the leading with the oblivion, the changing, he would. But then when I started reading and I sat there and said, this is the first, I, I, I I don't even call it a module. It's a written story, but very much I think it hits in the terms you were talking about, Claire, and I appreciate that. As, as a fan, I feel I could actually run that. I would run it. Thank you. You have no idea how big that is in the history of us doing this? I've been, I'm against, I call modules of the death, I never read them, never care to.
0: For all the sort of bumpy roads of V5, I personally think that it is very redemptive of, of the product.
2: Oh, I think, uh, sorry to interrupt there, but uh, I... I don't think that can be understated, uh, and it's something Onyx Path, I hope Onyx Path, the company, not just myself, not just Clara, and as an aside, um, Karim Mutamar at White Wolf deserves some of the credit as well for, uh, for Chicago and the sacrifice because he uh, approved the manuscript, he suggested some changes, and they were excellent changes as well, but getting back to my point, um, Onyx Path, have set the bar for v5 because again i've worked on all of the v5 products to date and i'm aware of course of the flaws in them and i'm aware of the of the issues that mired its release Uh, It certainly it's not hurt for sales or anything like that the controversy that surrounded it um some of it definitely regrettable but it's not uh, by any means slowed the game down, but here's Chicago by night, which has come out with none of that, just praise. and even for other Onyx path products to match that is going to be hard, let alone for Modiphius and the various board game companies. I, you know I'm working for some of them as well, and now I've got to keep in mind these products have got to do as well as Chicago or better than Chicago. <laughs> And it's a nice feeling. It's also a very intimidating feeling. So in the um, challenge,
3: just back to Clara, when you were writing about uh, the and um, particularly in the Sacrifice, what was the challenge that you had with the old, the way the clan was represented to writing for it now? What would you say was the hardest part?
1: Um, oh, I don't know. I, I think the hardest part is just to create new lore that you hope people like. <laughs> um... I, creating new lore is not it's not easy. And it's not easy to, to more or less guess what people would want, but that's kind of part of the creative process. Um, so I think representing such a popular clan in a new way is, or presenting such a popular clan in a new way, is always terrifying. Um, but also very exciting. Um, so for, for me, it was it was, I think, one of the challenges was definitely trying to um, to look at Clan Clanless Sombra in a way that the Camarilla would see favorable. Um, <laughs> because the whole deal with the sacrifice is you get to choose. You get to choose does the Clanless Sombra into the Camarilla or not? It's your choice as a player. Um, so I have to make that choice hard. So I can't just have a main antagonist who's an asshole, um, because then no one will choose them. If that's the rep- representative of the clan, why would they choose Clan La Sombra? And I can't just have someone who's super nice and super humane and super ethical. Uh, so I have to make that choice hard. So, again, that's why I chose to represent Clan Sombra in two different ways. But that's difficult because it still has to be Ca- Clan Sombra. I can't have a complete nice guy either because that wouldn't be Clan La Sombra, really. <laughs> that wouldn't be a vampire, would it? Um, so, yeah, I think just balancing those things and making everything um, work in currencies, that was, that was quite difficult.
2: Uh, um, I think something Rich Thomas, our creative director on XPath, has said to me, and other people have said it to me as well in other lines of work, but it's particularly pertinent when dealing with uh, RPG chronicles, scenarios, campaigns, modules, what have you, is you need to show, not tell. And The Sacrifice is very good at showing you uh, because it puts on display the faces of Clan La Sombra, and you get to hear rumors about them, maybe, but you get to see their actions. Now, I love reading chronicles like the Giovanni Chronicles and the Transylvania Chronicles, which I obviously know you've reviewed. I've listened to them. Uh, Excellent podcast, by the Mm -hmm. way, gentlemen. Thank you. (laughs) you. But those chronicles each suffer the issue of their telling not showing. Uh, you are quite often bystanders. The main action takes place not necessarily off-screen, although it does in a couple of occasions with Transylvania. But it's the old issue of uh, Drizzt Do'Urden or Elminster will roll up and soul and save Faerun for you, or in the case of uh, vampires, Beckett, Lucita, and Anatoly will will show up and they'll they'll save the world. So uh, Giovanni is a particular issue with that at least Giovanni was one definitely uh so it was something we really worked hard to not have happen with Chicago by night and I would say uh, that same philosophy has carried over into Let the Streets Run Red which will come out uh next I guess and the uh story that's in Cults of the Blood Gods too so yeah
0: is it difficult to create material like Chicago by Night and all the things that are, are kind of going along with it in an era where the fans have a more direct say in what gets included? Like with your your average Kickstarter, you know, Chicago by Night was the very first time I ever backed something on Kickstarter. So it was kind of like a new experience for me and seeing like all of the things that fans could sort of bring to the table, does that create a, like a new challenge for you? Or is that just like kind of part of the fun? It,
2: I think it's part of the fun. It can have a share of stresses because some people can just be mindlessly negative. And that happens with any established fan base, especially one that's been going for as long as Vampire. But I think providing people are courteous in giving you their ideas and don't try and rewrite the work for you without permission uh, it's it's generally fun to listen to people's opinions that's why during the kickstarter we uh, i guess drip feed it chapter by chapter to the backers so they can read it as they go along their excitement can build and if we have made any grievous errors or we've just made an omission somewhere that the fans spot because they're reading this diligently then excellent. It's a fantastic place for fans to have input. That's why we have errata passes, public errata passes on our books now. It's uh, because fans, a lot of fans, love having that level of input, and we like to benefit from it, quite frankly. Uh, it's It's a free service for us. It gives fans a possibility of having input, and providing they're not remaking the wheel, we are generally happy... To go along with their suggestions, you know, as long as they don't break the game. Uh, so, yeah, I think us having sort of almost peer-to-peer contact, if you like, with with customers, uh, with fans, is only a good thing. It's something Onyx Path are very good at that, that they've been pursuing for the last uh, five plus years with the blog, responding to comments every single week, uh, and all the various other outreaches that we have
1: yeah i i agree i think um van input is is very important i actually use that a lot when i wrote the sacrifice um i would get a sense of what people would like uh, and not because i wrote my chronicle after exactly that i have my own ideas but it's good to know what your audience wants you know what what kind of changes would they like to see um and can some of the comments on different forums, um, Facebook, can they inspire me to to create something that would be you know, received well and something people would want to play? Because that's essentially what it is. If I write something, uh, if I have some grand idea about a chronicle um, that I love, but people think it's shit, no one is going to, to like what I wrote. No one is going to play my game. Um, so... It's it's definitely important. I think I think fan input is is a great benefit.
2: Yeah, you can be an artist and create the most bespoke game that suits your style at the table and it may be lovely to look at and i'm sorry i use the word artist in a derogatory fashion but that you know there's some people that there are some it's because i don't like fan or a bunch of poses some people not just in this industry in all industries they create for their mind and that's brilliant if they have lots of disposable cash and they don't mind how successful it is other people design almost entirely by committee and they'll go out to the fans and what the fans suggest will be the outcome and that often leads to a horrible misguided mess so you do need to hit somewhere in the middle uh, ideally closer to the artist side so that you don't lose sight of what your initial vision was but as long as you're keeping your ears open to intelligent fan input and creative fan input uh, i definitely think there's a benefit there
3: something that i'm curious about is cult of the blood gods I know it's coming, Mm. I know it's been uh, announced, you know, kickstart everything else, but if you two wouldn't mind, give us your take on it. And what I mean by that is, I mentioned this in the community a little bit, and there were folks like, yeah, we we sort of saw it, but we're not real certain because of the whole cult thing
2: before we get to see the clans. And I was like, hmm, what you both are going to be on? Well, Clara didn't work on this one because I had her working on Ooh. Chicago Folios and Let the Streets Run Red. So I will be interested to hear what Clara is looking forward to seeing in this book.
1: Um, <laughs> oh, that's a that's a good question. Um, you know, I haven't really given it a lot of thought. Oh,
2: thank. <laughs> Stick it up in your eye. <laughs>
1: um, I want to see scary. I think that's what I'm like. I'm hungry for. I want to see yes. a scary, horrifying gothic book. That's kind of what I... When I envision uh, Calls of the Blood Gods, that's kind of where my mind goes. Um, wow. Well. And I, of course, hope to see uh, a lot of Clan of the Death, the Hakata. Uh That would be nice. Um, which I I think will be a, a big part of the book. Um, so, yeah.
2: I'm afraid to say a shit out of luck. There's nothing scary. (laughs) We cut the haircut. No, the (laughs) it's that's that's a perfectly valid question. You know, why would we focus on cults before clans? Um, So I'll deal with the clans side first. A lot of people have been asking for clan books, like that were released in uh, second and revised edition, and. The issue with that now is they just won't sell, frankly. Uh, you can't, uh, it's, uh, un, it's unlikely, and I may be saying this a bit too emphatically because I don't know what another company might have planned, but from my view, you can't release clan books anymore in the same style as they were released 20 years ago. And expect them to be as successful as they were then. And in fact, they weren't that successful then. There was a treadmill of production, and clan books like Asamite, Ravnos, even Zimitsi, and Giovanni, basically anything outside the core seven clans, never sold very well because the game was always pitched as a camera and art game, and at least early on, which meant that everything else was on the fringe. Now, if you think of the RPG market today, people seem less inclined to buy those small books, so that purchase percentage goes down even further. Sorry to get a bit businessy. Oh, please do. It's perfectly fine. Yeah, um, so I like to break it down to people like this, uh, because it usually destroys their souls when they ask for a clan book. Uh <laughs> so you take the, uh, the D&D model. Everyone buys the player's handbook because everyone needs to know how to build their character, in theory. you know. These days, uh, though, often there's only a couple of player's handbooks at the table, but we will assume everyone at the table has bought the player's handbook. When it comes to the Dungeon Master's Guide, maybe half that number bought it because they want the magical items and rules for traps. Who knows? And when it comes to the monster manual, only the DM bought that because players don't need the monsters. So then you start getting onto things like campaign settings. Only a fifth of GMs are going to buy that campaign setting, because not everyone wants to set their game in the Forgotten Realms. Then you get onto class books. Well, if there's 12 classes in the game, and I'm the only person playing a fighter, I'm the only one who's going to buy a book about fighters. And you can see how this extrapolates and becomes an increasingly diminishing market. When you look at it from a vampire standpoint, you've got your core book, you've got your sect books, you've got your clan books, you've got your city books, and then you have your really weird esoteric books, of which there were lots in, in the revised era, where mm-hmm. things like Archons and Templars and uh, State of Grace, for instance, which is Unchaining the Beast. Uh, those are books that have a very, very narrow market. They're almost appealing entirely to a core fan base and no casual players. So getting back to Cults of the Blood Gods, I wanted a book that covers religion holistically in Vampire the Masquerade because it's never really been done before. Almost all RPGs set in a fantasy world have some kind of gods, demigods, deities, priests, what have you. And while there was State of Grace in previous edition, in revised edition for Vampire that was a very narrow view of religion, Vampire. This is the cult of Mithras, the Bahari, the Church of Cain, the Church of Set, um, a bunch of new religions as well, as well as the Hekata, the, the Clan of Death, because they are a big death cult. Uh, they, at least the upper levels of them, do want to tear down the Shroud and make the world a very gloomy place, although that may no longer be the case in V5. You'll have to wait and see. Uh, so I thought... That it's the one area Vampire has never really explored fully, that Vampires, when when you are granted eternal life, what is your purpose? What do you do? It's a, it's a paralysis a lot of players feel when they get to Vampire, and what a lot of aspiring storytellers feel. They think, well, this game is fantastic. I love the setting, but I can't do shit with it because these people could live forever. They've got nothing to do with their time. Everything seems so trivial. Well, religion is almost the great equalizer. It's the thing that allows everyone to aspire to something transcendental or allows them to aspire to become demigods themselves or find purpose in in life. So, for instance, uh, or existence, I should say, for the vampires. So if you take uh, the Church of Set, for example, the Church of Set is all about liberation. We removed the word corruption. Because they're not going around twiddling mustaches, saying, hey, 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 "You know, well, today I found an evangelical priest <laughs> and I re- removed his hope and I removed his his charity." Ha <laughs> ha! He's getting closer to set, and they all clap each other on, other on the back and smoke incense and so on. What the Setites are is a chaos cult. They are, um, and they're a nice parallel to mythical Mithras, which is a law cult. So you actually have a a faith of law and a faith of chaos if you want to get a bit more cocky and about it. So the Church of Set is all about liberating people. Uh, you are currently tied down to your mortal beliefs. You're currently tied down to your mortal vices. You're currently tied down to your mortal touchstone. Now, this may sound a bit sabbat to you, but it's always been in the religion of Set that you need to divest yourself. Of those things that are holding you back. They are stopping you from realizing your full potential. And that your full potential isn't to become a monster. Your full potential is to become closer to set. It's to make a void inside yourself and fill that void with set. And once set is there, you can then help other people get to that state. And it sounds almost utopic. There's a, uh, a domain in Let the Streets Run Red that is run by the Ministry uh, and the Church of Set is present as well, although the ministry has many different faces. And it comes across as a utopia in this scenario because it's free, it's anarch. You can practice whatever you like, you can do whatever you like. There's barely any rules. All you have to do is occasionally attend uh, a ministry reading, allow them to guide you, allow them to help you remove your shackles. And. It sounds great, because it looks like they're mentoring everyone, helping them all up these steps. But there's a libertarian side to the Setites that say, well, if you can't make it, if you can't do it, if you can't fill that void with Set yourself, then you're not deserving of his love. You're not deserving of his beneficence. You can just fuck off. And so this domain, which is Indianapolis... Is crawling with whites, vampires who have succumbed to the beast. Because these Setites have dragged them along this path and said, yeah, chop that touchstone off um, get rid of that conviction, and you know, loot and hand over the the keys to your business to the Church of Set because you don't need that shit anymore." Then they leave you naked, essentially, metaphorically, and if you can then join them and they might have a hand outstretched, or they might just be looking at you laughingly, then brilliant, well done, you've joined it, you made it to the church. But if not, they'll just hop in the car and drive off. And the only choice you've got at that point is to do, go downhill and become a beast. So in the center of Indianapolis, you've got this lovely setite utopia, and all, and all the fringes, horrible. So that's the kind of thing that we want to put in Cults of the Blood Gods as well, the idea that These faiths promise something to vampires, and when you've got an eternity of potential purgatory, just constant politicking with your prince, being ground down by your elder's heel, reaching for religion and something more spiritual is a perfectly logical step, because after all, you are supernatural, so these things may be real too.
0: I can tell you personally I'm very excited about the book because one of the things that really struck my interest with v5 was kind of this hearing about how there's been a a, like a revival of um kind of like the religious and you know the sabbat we've we've said many times that's something we enjoy and it doesn't really seem like it's a focus in v5 so seeing something where kind of like that religious aspect is uh is going to be touched on is definitely something i'm excited for
2: yeah the The Sabbat aren't in it yet, of course, as we know, but the Church of Cain are present in the cults of the Blood Gods book, and um, they're not your Catholic Church of Cain. I know you, as a time of recording, you only recently uh, did your review of the Cainite heresy uh, for Vampire the Dark Ages, Mm -hmm. and the Church of Cain is the Cainite heresy in the modern era. They're Gnostics. They believe Cain is Jesus. They believe he is the angel of murder, and all the vampires who worship him are his cherubs. The the reality is hell. Earth is hell, and you can get closer to heaven if you get closer to Cain. So they are Gnostics, and that's how the Church of Cain is presented in Cult of the Blood Gods. Uh, and I think it's quite good fun. They even have um, some fire-based thaumaturgy uh, or blood sorcery rituals for anyone who's waiting for them to come back into V5. Like
3: a ton of people. You just made magic happen <laughs> when you said that. I just want you to know there. Um, I do have a question for Claire, though, and it is about something related, though, different uh, genre. Uh, well, I, I'll, I'll say genre, but kind of in the same wheelhouse. Um, you did a little. You did work on cult, correct?
1: Yes, I did. Yeah.
3: Now, how does this relate to what he was talking about to the religions? Um, does this kind of echo anything you did in cult, or do you feel cult was just a lot more hardcore, and you had to go kind of go deep,
1: uh, uh, deeper,
3: I should say, to get to that?
1: I mean, um... Religion is definitely a big, big, big part of cult. Uh, I didn't work on the core book. Uh, I worked on another book uh, I can't really mention um, that may or may not be out um, soon. Um, (laughs) uh, But but yeah, there are definitely um, some deep... religious aspects and i can see there are certain parallels between the two worlds but it's it's very different in cult i feel cult is is horror in a completely different way almost because it's so f- um the dark part of cult, um the the scary the horrific part of cult, is so far from humanity that it just creates this black and white kind of uh, deal where in I feel like in vampire it's like a grey spot, it's a grey area because you have vampires who still have humanity uh, and where in Call there's much more focus on these beings, these creatures that are just from hell, like completely uh, there's nothing left in them that could be called human so I I see I I do see some parallels, but I think they are they they are different. They are definitely very different. It's a very different horror game. They are great horror games, both of them, but very different.
0: I'm aware that you started gaming at a very early age with LARP. Is that right?
1: That's correct. Yeah.
0: What drew you to horror role playing? What was it that drew you to this style of gaming?
1: That's a really good question. I um I talked to my mom. Um, a couple of years ago and she uh she said to me clara do, do you remember you used to have a pen pal and you would always you would always draw cemeteries and vampires and ghosts and skeletons for her while she would always send you pictures of flowers or so and, and it got to a point where her parents called my parents to check if I was okay. <laughs> 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 because it was, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure what drew me to that. But it's something that I've always been interested in. Like, I think, it, it, I think it, there's a part of me that likes that taboo there is around horror. Um, taboo there is around death. Uh, which is definitely a di- big um, part of horror. It's it's almost like a the main theme of horror, like the fear of of dying, um, or succumbing, or losing yourself to something. Um, I'm I have no idea. I, I promise I didn't experience any violent trauma in my childhood, um, so I'm not sure what what that came from but it's something that's always interested me and vampire is something that's always interested me and and of cthulhu eh, it's so i think it's because it's so different from from what we experience in in life like it's a a completely different world where you celebrate we celebrate things you are not supposed to celebrate things you are supposed to be scared of things that are supposed to uh appall you uh actually just kind of attracts me because it's interesting it's it's different.
3: I want to tell you both that I really think it's 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 amazing work from even the cult perspective, onto this of Cult of the Blood Gods. Uh, I agree with you, Matthew, in the fact that it hasn't been done. Every time I've ever seen religion, even remotely, been brought up in the reviews we've been doing or even storytelling the game, I've watched people kind of shirk away. And I was always curious and profoundly interested as to why it's okay to play an immortal being but you just think every night is going out to the club
0: the other thing that i've noticed is like even when like those alternate religions are mentioned in books it's usually like here's a paragraph thank you have a nice day like that's what you get
1: yeah
3: but to that point there's a there's a gray area that you're talking about where i think in cult into vampire what keeps resonating in my head is that when you're mortal and you know your life's gonna end there's an extreme swing one way or the other eventually you got to pick a side on how things are going for you what this life means to you but it's a curse, a literal curse that you outline in Vampire when you're an immortal. And you have to, if you look up or down, you have plenty of time to explore both. Yeah. And that is almost more frightening in a, in a way. Although I've read <laughs> Cult. I'm not taking away that. It's scary.
1: It's something that's really interesting. Um, because it's something I wanted to, to make clear in, in the V5 books I've participated in. Um, was being a vampire isn't fun. It's not fun. It's 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 a shitty deal, um, and it's not always something that it's rarely something that you choose yourself. Um, it's it's you're not a superhuman. You're not you don't have you have I guess what you can call superpowers, but it comes with a horrible horrible curse. And again, that's that's taking the humanity perspective in. I wanted it to be as down to earth horror as I could make it, um, and I, because I think that's the most horrifying. Or most scary horror—it's what you can actually recognize in your own life. Um, I've never really been a big uh, scared of of aliens and stuff that's so far away and so irrelevant to me in a way. But things that I can I can recognize within myself—that's scary. Um, so um, so getting that vampiric curse um is, is not a fun deal and it's 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 um it's not something you should be proud of uh it's something you should be you should be you should be scared of it because it's there is a lot of shitty things about it not to say that there aren't you, you know you can't be a a vampire that loves your existence but i just think we need to to look at it from uh the perspective of a human just turning vampire like how fucked up is that um how how would you react like try to empathize with how an actual reaction would be to certain suddenly being cursed
3: it's well said and i agree <laughs> that's why i said it. you can see me applauding when you said that
2: we've uh, one of the cults hmm. among various other handy tools uh, i mean it's appropriate enough i guess that we have at least <laughs> one cult otherwise it would just be cult of the blood gods uh, and that would be blood god wouldn't it but anyway uh we have that would just be religion <laughs> vampire religion that would be a very dull title anyway my point is that one of the cults in cults of the blood gods is the bahari the uh the church of lilith if you prefer although she probably wouldn't like it if you called it a church and the the lilin or the baham or bahari have had a very mixed portrayal in their very few appearances in Vampire the Masquerade and Vampire the Dark Ages. Revelations of the Dark Mother is not a book that has been read terribly widely compared to the book of Nod by fans and their appearance as a path of the Sabbat in uh, Vampire the Masquerade is very different to their scant appearances in Dark Ages. Uh, so how we presented the Bihari in Cults of the Blood Gods is very much as an avenging angel cult. Or at least they feel like they are an avenging angel cult. Because I think one of the great tragedies of vampire is, of course, there's no such thing as a good deed when you're a blood-sucking monster. And when your followers, the people you're saving, become your followers, your followers, they become your herd. They become your retainers. You end up using them. You end up draining them because you're hungry. You end up using them for their contacts, their as allies. And so that these Bahari, uh, as an example of what the Bahari can be about, may go around, uh, let's say, murdering or brutalizing every every abuser mentioned in the newspapers and mentioned to them in rumor or anecdote. So in their domain, they make a habit of, I'm only ever going to feed from the abusive. I'm only going to feed from people, from criminals, who didn't get a long enough sentence, because that makes them feel good. It makes them feel like their purpose as immortal predators is justified. Now I have a reason for being. I'm Batman. But it's catharsis. It isn't justice. What they're pursuing isn't for some goodly deed. It's because they are so severely fucked up as vampires, so much shit has been poured on them to even make them join the Bihari in the first place, that the only way they can feel good about themselves is by hurting other people. And you can see how that's going to accumulate stains to use a V5 system. It's going to make your humanity erode, and eventually you're not going to care about who you're beating up, who you're draining to death. You're just doing it because you have convinced yourself that that person deserved it. And so the Bahari are one of these slippery slope cults where, again, just like the Church of Set, in fact, they have some crossover uh, mentioned in the book that some Church of Set members admit the Bahari into their church that you can believe that the deeds you're pursuing for the good, and they may well be if you have enough self-control but the vast majority of your cultists, your seeds, your maidens and matrons and the like in in your cult of Lilith are just using religion as an excuse to hit people over the head, which is not that dissimilar to a lot of uh, people using religion in the real world. <laughs> what I'm particularly liking is Matthias, Kalmar and Craig of Redmond Roleplaying are going to have listened to this point. And they're going to think, when are they going to fucking talk about this podcast? (laughs) (laughs) When's it going to be about us? Yeah. Hi, guys. How did that all roll
0: out? Like how we get caught up in our own little world and, you know, Bob and I, we kind of do our thing and... You know, how did that roll out with you? They they approached us to talk to you guys and, you know, wouldn't have even occurred to me to ask you to come on. And then it was just like, oh, duh. So but how did that happen for, for you guys?
3: I want to add, we're more than elated to have both of you here. it's yeah. it's, it's that in our head, it was like, oh, we didn't
2: even know we could get
3: Clara. Uh, right, to, to right. come talk for it and Ma-
2: matthew again yeah absolutely yeah i mean i'm just common trash but clara she's exclusive yeah
1: <laughs>
2: well i've been running games for redmond role-playing for most of the year i started with they came from beneath the sea i ran some scarred lands for them as well i'm running cults for them and later this year i'll be running some v5 uh probably some mummy the curse as well for second edition when that uh gets up, put on kickstarter uh Woo. so i had a pre-existing relationship with red moon role playing uh that i th- i'm trying to remember now i think they approached me initially uh, to see whether i wanted to run some games it may have even started with a request for cult divinity lost and somehow i persuaded them to do they came from instead but uh, probably because the kickstarter was running at the time in fact it definitely was it was at the very beginning of this year and i've I really get on with the guys there. I think they're incredibly talented. They're brilliant role players, excellent editors. Uh, that's a that's a trick you two could learn. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no um, when they do their actual plays, uh, and this is something not enough... Well, different people like different things from their actual plays, and if you like a high-production-value uh, actual play with... Sound effects with appropriate music, with good cuts, good editing, and uh, an audio mixing, and so on. Redmond role playing are superb. They really make RPGs into audio dramas, and so they've told me that they came from actual play is one of their most downloaded, and that's incredibly gratifying to me because you know I. Conceptualized, developed, co wrote that game. So to know it's so popular on their channel is uh, immensely humbling. Uh, And, you know, they've won an any because despite their youth as a role playing game podcast, they have just barreled out of the gate with success after success.
1: They're just genuinely good, good guys.
2: Yeah. How did you get involved with this?
1: Barum. yeah we, you asked me
2: <laughs> it was it me <laughs> yeah
1: you asked me if I wanted to run uh, the sacrifice and I said yes
2: huh. there you go you can blame me
1: <laughs> um, no I yeah and and I didn't really know much about role-playing role- before I, I ran the game and I'd never run a, a game on a podcast before so it, it was all new for me um, but they just they're just comfortable guys to to run a game for it's you, sometimes well, i think we all know if we run a game um and sometimes players can be a little um stressful to run a game for um because um they might just the chemistry might just not be there but i they are just so good at at just doing whatever they can to make the game enjoyable for everyone and that makes my job as a storyteller incredibly easy um and, and it, they are very good at, ro- at focusing on roleplay. And that's something I really appreciate as well. Because that's something I love to do. I'm not a big rules person. Uh, I never have been. I think rules are there to guide. And you can use them if you want to. But what this is about is roleplay. It's a role playing game. Um, so <clears throat> focusing on having some really good scenes. And focusing on the story and the character development is my thing and they just make it easy for me and everyone all of the characters in this game are so interesting in their own special way they are they have family secrets they have drama they have uh, ruined love lives they have all of these humane things again going back to humanity they are all fairly new vampires so they are pretty attached to their touchstones um their mortal um, anchors, keeping them away from the beast. Um, and again, I think that's and I think that's, that's a great thing for V five. That's a great mechanic. But anyway, um, it's focusing on on just having a family dinner and having your father maybe realizing that you are actually a vampire, maybe not is it creates great drama. And, and it creates honestly creates a great podcast. Because nobody wants to listen to someone flipping through a rule book constantly. Um, nobody wants to listen to someone who is ruining the uh, the game because you need to use f- five minutes on on looking some ability up. It doesn't really do anything. Uh, it doesn't really do anything for the story. Um, so, so, yeah. Um, it's it's a joy it's a great joy to run this game for the manner. I really think that that reflects in the podcast I really think that everyone's relaxation and the fact that we're all having fun it makes this a great podcast
0: do you record them all at, like in succession or plan out different gaming sessions and then they come out or you know kind of like what does it look like behind the scenes as far as when you sit down to record versus when those are released so
2: we uh we use zoom uh, and we record usually a two to three hour session in in one night it usually gets divided up into uh two or three episodes later after it's been edited depending on how much of it can be salvaged and we also record uniquely uh, at our, uniquely isn't the word I was looking for, individually, uh, which I guess means the same thing, using Audacity and we send the files off to uh, to Redmi Playing just in case anything goes wrong with the communal Zoom file. Uh, then once they've got the files, they check which ones sound best for sound quality and they edit them down. Um, and I say they because uh, Clara and I don't do any of the hard work on that. I do, do that kind of thing for the Onyx Pathcast, but uh, I certainly don't for Redmi Roleplaying. They're far more talented than, than I would be, and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, and we record every week almost. Every week or every yeah. other week.
3: I'm normally not into uh, listening to play. Um, it's not something that I've ever really thought of thoroughly, mainly because, I'll, I'll say it now, it's because I'm a dullard, because I listen to the Seven Sisters uh, playthrough and one of the things that still gets me to laugh that I remember from it was how easy going it was for the storyteller to tell a situation where this, I think it was a scientist if memory serves, uh, just started talking and they thought, and the players are in the other room and they weren't part of the discussion. That's the point I want to get across. And one of the biggest things in tabletop role play is always, well, did my player hear this? Right? You'll hear that. She's coming back. Did we hear that evil discussion was in the other room? And the storyteller goes, well, you could have listened in, did you? And they were just like, yeah. And I was laughing because I was like, it's that simple. They acted on that knowledge now as if, you know, you want to be Mm. a part of it? Yeah, absolutely. Feel free and go with it. And that's lessons learned uh, for a lot of folks who may not do that. Definitely listen to uh, that that one I recommend, and of course anything with V five, that just sounds like a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, I think uh, they've they've got the right style of uh, both as players and GMS uh, of reacting to players. Something Clara said earlier: the best stories cater to the players' needs and desires. And I think that kind of uh, do-I-hear-it question comes up a lot in RPGs, and it isn't always easy for a GM to react and immediately think of what is the most fun. But that is what they need to be thinking. That is what GMs, the best GMs, need to, well, that's what they do think. They think when a question is posed, what creates the most fun kind of outcome? And so, if someone says, "Have we put gasoline in the car?" then the g m will probably be thinking, "Haha, no, you didn't because I want you to break down on the side of the road and have to walk because I have this encounter planned now all of a sudden, or uh, I don't have any encounters in mind, so I will just say, "Yeah, you've got just enough to get to the next gas station." Redwing role playing are very good for that kind of spontaneity, and when they're not they can edit it to make them sound like they are.
1: <laughs> I think it's very interesting because um, my experience, and um, this is not to, to talk badly about any games, but sometimes my experience with, for example, a game is uh, like Dungeon Dragons where you are, as a GM, you are the bad guy. You are the one with all the monsters, basically. So you are constantly fighting against your players. Uh, so they see you as this terrifying being, like you can do anything. You can kill their character. Where um, I feel in Vampire, as a storyteller, you don't have the monsters. The players are the monsters. So this battle, this back and forth, isn't really there. There is no reason for that to be there. It's, it's collaboration. It's you creating a story together, uh, not the storyteller story necessarily creating the story for you. And again, going back to just let your players run the game for you, basically. Um, you can have an outline in your head. You can think, okay, I want them to end here tonight. I want them to end on this at this bar because I have a character there I want them to speak to. But how they get there, let them decide. Because that creates player initiative and that sparks imagination. It sparks creativity. It gives the players a sense of um decisiveness like they can actually control their character more if they are not forced into your vision of this story um and it also gives them um lots of victories throughout the games uh, because if you as a gm or you as a storyteller allow them to win allow them to 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 do this thing that they want to do with their character just let them do it. Don't say, "Oh no, uh, you can't do that because uh, that wasn't a part of what I have planned tonight." It's that's not fun. Let your players run free.
2: This is the first game I have played with Clara as storyteller.
1: I think that's
2: um, true. And it's very rare for me to even get to play vampire, uh, let alone f- um, run by someone I know so well. And it's. It is really enjoyable. It's it's been an excellent game so far. We're only part way through the chronicle again at the time of recording this. I think we'll be going for a little while yet. But it's been great to observe Clara's storytelling style and just be able to let my metaphorical hair down to to play an absolute shit well, actually, I don't know if my character is an absolute shit he is in the ministry but he's a reluctant minister
1: he's misunderstood
2: yeah he just has for all the, stemming back all the way to his mortal days he's had a bit of a uh, screwed up life he's a male model and his parents were the kinds of parents to stick him in beauty pageants and they're uh, yeah, like their moms
1: you see on TLC <laughs>
2: mm, yeah little honey boo-boo child yeah (laughs) exactly yeah yeah yeah. that is that has been his world that was his world for most of his childhood so it's given him certain expectations and while he isn't close to his parents anymore because he identifies that what they did was screwed up he is still a very successful male model it's still the only world he knows and carrying that through to being a vampire as far as he's concerned his world is still that of a male model he doesn't um See any reason to differentiate the way he was, well, the way he is now, the way he was then. He still wants to hang around with photographers, with magazines, um, with other models. He doesn't want to associate with vampires particularly. Everything is about what he's going to wear tonight, how he's going to be seen, who's going to photograph him. Is he going to be seen dead in a place like this, quite literally? Uh, and that kind of thing. And, it, and when I was initially discussing the character with Clara, we were a bit worried is there the possibility of him turning into a, a zoolander? And I'm glad he definitely <laughs> hasn't. Uh he's he's All kind of, of yeah, he, he is not um a comedy character. He certainly pokes fun at the other characters in the game because he has very little tolerance for them.
1: He's a bit of uh, a bully. He definitely yes. is yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh...
1: But in a way, you play him in a way, uh, and that's um, really something I appreciate. You play him in a vulnerable way as well. Um, he's not bulletproof at all, and he has weaknesses. And something I really enjoy about your character, and it gives me mental Im- images uh, to um, American Psycho, because he, he he is just the American Psycho for me. Th- that is <laughs> what he is. I can just imagine being, having this elaborate morning routine uh, using three different kinds of lotion and uh, working out and doing the exact same workout every single morning and being this very routine kind of um, a sociopath <laughs> but still having his soft spots and his soft like his weaknesses and that's really what's important that makes him a, an interesting character
2: Yeah he's got very little self control he's, uh, he's pretty damn good across the attributes but when it comes to his resolve and composure it's like three dots maximum between the two of them so he plays a fast game but as soon as someone challenges him he just completely breaks down and lunges uh, so yeah he's uh, been a lot of fun to to step into a player's shoes
1: how many times have you you've frenzied twice now haven't you
2: frenzied twice diablerized once <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's it's very weird for me to read about people's diablery um in their social media so (laughs) kudos to
2: you (laughs) it's it is the first time i've ever committed diablery in a game of vampire. wow well you didn't have the youth that bob and i did so
0: (laughs)
3: <laughs> we're, we're being deliberately quiet because we're going to let that be There's a, there, there are many podcasts where we talked about our debacles um, oh, <laughs> we,
0: we've been some of the worst
2: <laughs> well the thing I always found when I was playing Vampire when I first got into it and running it was there were so many people playing it to, uh, like a game of D&D they were trying to level up and so Diablery was their way of leveling up because you, could, you couldn't buy generation with experience right. points and not enough people had access to that Tremere ritual that allowed you to pretend uplift your generation for a night. So, um, so yeah, people just committed diablerie because they thought this is the only way I can get more powerful in this game, despite the fact experience points did exactly that. Uh, and it was a weird disconnect <laughs> that so many players just seemed to exhibit with Vampire the Masquerade. I never really understood it but yeah i have fin- finally jumped onto that bandwagon i understand now uh, <laughs> i am a power gamer too
1: <laughs> well speaking quite seriously it's, it's something i loathe it's it's a playstyle i hate i hate playing to win and it, it's it's just so there's no it's just not role playing for me if you are if you are playing a game of vampire and you are playing to become the lowest generation you possibly can you are losing what role playing is about. It's about playing a role, um, and 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 you're not. You are you are yourself pushing uh, someone you haven't really related to to be the best that they can be. But you've completely misunderstood if you think uh, low generation vampire equals the best that you can be because you just you become less and less playable. Uh, you can't if you get a load generation enough you just can't play that character anymore because you as a human playing that character cannot relate to what it is to be a generation two or three even it's just impossible and it it loses all the fun playing a character that doesn't have any weaknesses that's that's not fun it's not fun to play someone who can with a snap of a finger just destroy an entire room full of mortals it's it's To me, it isn't at least. I know some people think they would definitely disagree with me, but it's just not, there's no death to a character like that.
0: I do want to ask one other question, though. Um, On the storyteller player kick, talking about the diablerie, for the two of you, an answer as you see fit, what are some of the biggest challenges you still have sitting down at a table whether it's as a player or as a storyteller that's not necessarily related to you know your work as, as contributors or writers but you know it could be if that's your biggest challenge but like what's the one thing like you still find difficult about either playing in a game or storytelling in a game
2: clara doesn't have any difficulties perfect storytelling. no
1: i'm perfect basically <laughs> um,
2: uh, you know, it's, it's another interesting question uh because i i have a couple uh, one, the main one, and this has always been my issue with running games, is combat. I lose interest in combat very quickly, which is probably why D&D isn't the game it used to be for me. I, I still love Dungeons & Dragons, I still love Pathfinder for that matter, I, I think it, they both do their job incredibly well, but... When it comes to combat breaking down round by round, and I swing my sword, and how much damage do I do? And yes, you can flavor it and color it with as much wonderful text as you like, but you are ultimately knocking numbers off of a monster. Uh, I grow bored after the second round, uh, and so I try and find as many ways of making combat quick as I can. Uh, And usually that results in my games having very little combat in them. So combat means something uh, when it does finally happen. That, again, extends to games like D&D and Pathfinder. I concluded a Pathfinder campaign a year or so ago, and there was a lot of trekking from here to there and exploring ruins and things like that. But there were probably only a half a dozen combats in the entire campaign, and because of that, even when it was against creatures that were smaller or lower challenge rating than the player characters, it always had meaning. Uh, I I don't know whether I struggle to make combat interesting for players. I don't remember players ever complaining to me. Maybe I just didn't listen, But <laughs> it, but it doesn't stay interesting to me. I want to move back on to role-play, and so few people actually role-play their characters when they uh, get involved in combat. You know, uh, to my mind, the best combat scenes in movies and novels are where people are talking during combat, where there's a riposte of words. Is why The Princess Bride is so fantastic, that they are having a conversation with swords. Uh, and uh, another movie, um, what would it be... Um, Rob Roy, that's the one with Liam Neeson in, I think. Um, the That also has just fantastic, fantastic sword fights that tell a tale. And when you get around the table and do it, so many people get focused on the grind of combat that they forget they're playing a role-playing game. So that's my biggest weakness. The one I... Uh, have experienced lately, Uh, by lately I mean over the last few years, uh, is when it comes to playing games like Vampire. Uh, I don't think I'm an awful player. (laughs) I don't think I take over the game or that I try and tell the storyteller how they should be doing their job i certainly hope i don't do that clara can confirm or deny but better try yeah <laughs> but <laughs> but i have played in games where storytellers are concerned that i will or they're concerned that they won't get something right, and so it completely destroys their confidence. And I'm not exaggerating; it sounds arrogant, and I apologise for that. But I ran into I played in uh, two Vampire: The Masquerade Chronicles within the same year, and the storyteller of each um, called the first one to a halt after the first session because he occasionally had to look in the rule book and said. I could feel you judging me. You know, I I know I could have just asked you what the rules were, but I didn't want to do that in front of the other players. And I said, I honestly didn't care. I was enjoying playing my character. I wasn't looking at you witheringly or anything like that. It was done. Chronicle ended. The second time, um, the storyteller gave me his notes on the domain beforehand, and I should have just said, no, I'm fine. But he said, I want you to check these just to make sure it feels like Vampire and oh, wow. and i was interested because again i was really looking forward to getting a chance to play vampire so i said sure i'll have a look at them and i looked through them and he said do you have any thoughts and and i said well just think about your you've got a nosferatu spy master who who mans the secret heads the secret police in the city and this nosferatu apparently has eyes all over the city just think about how those eyes work. How does he get people to report to him? And unbeknownst to me, this completely shattered the guy's confidence, and he couldn't think of a way for the Nosferatu to actually be a spy master. And when, again, this one only lasted one session as well, we confronted the Nosferatu, and he was surrounded by about 100 childer, and they were all masters of obfuscate. And I can hear you cringe right now. <laughs> uh, and they all lived, or they all made the haven in the docks of the city, these poor bloody dockers just being drained dead every single night uh, from these hundred or so Nosferatu that almost all looked like their sire. Now, one of the uh, one of the other players, I just said nothing during this. I was thinking, this isn't what I meant. When I said, How does he spy on people? Uh and one of the other players said, So where do they go to feed then? And the storyteller was uh, Game done. Yeah, the storyteller just thought, Fuck it, I have um I have screwed up my credibility. And <laughs> and it blamed me for it, for even mentioning it. And I what I was thinking when I said that, because I didn't want to tell him what to do, but what I was thinking was you're an Osferatu. You've got animalism. Maybe there's rats all over the city. Maybe there's an odd propensity for birds to hang around in unusual places because no one ever uses bloody animalism, do they? It's a fantastic discipline, and if I was to spy on someone as a vampire, I certainly wouldn't send a vampire to do it. And I wouldn't send a mortal because they'd probably get bitten. So I would just send a cockroach to sit in a corner, take everything in, and scuttle back to me. But no, that unfortunately was uh, was missed so yeah i i have difficulties playing in games because so few people want to run for me
3: i, I just want to say one thing real quick related to this i want to know if either one of you've experienced this i'll get like the like 30 people want to sign up for a tabletop i got to pick the five who came first sort of thing and then we sit down and run a game session and making can attest, we'll start running a game and i come from claire's school of thought when it comes to you know it's about the players you know that's that focus is there when you're like all right what are you doing and you start coaching them through it, I expect a good two, three sessions where you need that, and then when you they have the attention, eventually they're just like, "I just want to call I want to call up so and so mentor, okay, no problem. what are we discussing?" And they're like, "I don't know, just want to see how they're doing
0: yeah' kinda kind of <laughs> kind of, of like, like All All right, a cool. passive a passiveness instead of <laughs> right. being like a proactive or an active player there a lot of players we've experienced being very passive about their
3: their gameplay, yeah, and they do it once or twice. But that's what I'm. That's what i wondering is if you've seen it.
1: Yeah, well, actually, that ties into my uh, to to my weakness or something that I've been trying to um, find a way around as a storyteller because I do experience that sometimes, and it can be for various reasons. Uh, I run a couple of uh, games at conventions where I don't know any players, so they they don't know me. Uh, maybe they've heard about me, but I haven't met me in person, and. It, It can be from different reasons some of them can be newer role players and be a little hesitant to jump into this whole role-playing experience um maybe be a little shy maybe be afraid that they aren't good enough um so i think you need to take that into perspective because you are putting yourself out there when you are playing a role you are you are acting and not everyone feels comfortable with that uh so you as a storyteller have a responsibility to make your game as comfortable for them as possible and help guide them into their character. And the way I've kind of figured you can do that is make their make their play make their, their characters interesting. Help them dive into who they are. So have a brother or sister call them with an with an issue uh, that maybe um um, pulls them away from what the prince just told them to go do. So, what do they choose? Do they choose to to help their sister, uh, who's really in dire need of the help, or do they choose to go with the prince because they're a vampire? So, um, or have a uh, a grandparent um, be um, uh, gulled by a by a, by another vampire? Have have um. Focus on their character. It's not just about the story. It's about helping them getting into their character. Um, and that is where I really take charge as a storyteller. That's the only part where I, where I take charge. And I decide this is happening right now. Uh, I talked about a family dinner we have in, in, um, in the Red Moon role-playing part of the sacrifice. It's not a part of the sacrifice. It's just something I decided that we are going to have this family dinner. Because it's going to... Um, create some depth for the players and their characters. It's going to connect them to who they are playing, to something that's relatable to everyone, having an awkward family dinner. We've all tried that. Um, so if you as a storyteller want your players to role-play more and engage more, make their characters interesting for them. Help them get into who they are.
3: So you're saying less put the lotion in the basket and more... What else would you like to do? Got it.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: Totally unrelated to anything we've talked about up to this point. If there was one property either of you could work for, whether it's current or past or gaming or television or anything, something that would be like your dream writing job,
2: what would it be? Clara can go first this time.
1: Oh, I'm thinking.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Take your time. There's no pressure. All right. I'll go first. That's actually a difficult one, because I've already done everything. I can retire. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, because there's some properties I have told myself that I never want to work on, uh, because I love them too much to see how the sausage is made, essentially. And uh, I like that with changing the last which I guess I've kind of worked on now because i developed a changeling era for Dark Heroes 2, and of course the Contagion Chronicle as well, for Chronicles of Darkness, which I've changed inside so fuck, that one's gone. Eclipse Phase is another one. Eclipse Phase is a brilliant, fantastic sci-fi game. Second edition is uh, the PDFs are out to backers, and yeah, just superb game of transhumanism, and the science in it is just so rich that the lore in it is fantastic. I love it. And yet, even though I've had the opportunity, it's a game I just don't want to write for. Part of that's a lack of confidence. I don't know that I can ever write hard sci-fi quite as well as I write horror. But mostly it's because I enjoy reading Eclipse Facebooks so much uh, that I feel like writing them, I would lose some of that magic. Because I've I've certainly had that to a degree with vampire. Uh Clara knows that there there are times I've said to her, you know, I wish I could be done with fucking vampire or <laughs> words to that effect. Yeah. A couple of times a day. Uh, because it's a game now I've been working on the world of darkness for about five years. Maybe longer in fact. And I know there are people who have been working on it for far longer than that. Uh when I consider someone like Rich Thomas on its path he's been involved in the world of darkness since its inception but there's so many times i think okay i need to add a new string to the bow at this point and i think i've told all the stories i can tell so in terms of rpg properties i would love to one day work on Planescape. For Dungeons & Dragons, it's my favourite D&D setting, and it's always boggled my mind that it's never seen a new edition. Maybe second edition sold so poorly, but I feel fifth edition would certainly stand a chance of doing better. Uh, outside of that, I think I would love to do some more voice acting for video games. Uh, I've, I did it a little For a couple of projects under NDA that I suspect have been cancelled because I got paid for them and nothing ever happened. Um, Now, I don't think that was my fault. Uh, (laughs) It was because I was asked to do a dramatic voice. I said, Hey, what is your pleasure, sir? And. (laughs) But
3: anyway. Well, not your fault because you were paid. I mean, that's how it goes. Yeah, exactly.
2: (laughs) Fuck them. And I've written for a video game as well. I did some content design for a Paradox game, actually. And. I can't confirm or deny what's going on with that one but it's something I would love to do a little more of so yeah there's there's still some doors open to me some in the RPG industry some outside of it
1: Yeah, when it comes to tabletop role-playing games um, something I've always wanted to do um, is diving into more Lord of Rings inspired um, role-playing games just because I'm such a big Tolkien fan uh, I would love that. Uh, I know Cubicle 7 have uh, the one ring, and I would have loved to be a part of that. Um, just Only just because I love the franchise so much. Um, but I want to echo Matthew on a few things. Um, I would love to do more video game writing. Um, I It's something I'm trying to get into, so if anyone out there is looking for a great writer for a new video game, <laughs> uh, hit me up. Um, I... I just love video games. I always have. And just as much as I love role-playing games. And if I can put my name on something and influence something, that would be great. Especially something from The Elder Scrolls. That would be a dream come true. If I could somehow get my fingers near uh, the new Skyrim game, I would die happy. Uh, It's... um... It, it really is a, a huge dream. But any video game, really, that has some sort of role-playing aspect to it uh, would be great for me. I would l- absolutely love that. And I think it comes from me loving just visual art so much. I'm, I'm a painter, not a very good one, um, but I do paint and I love visual art. And I think that video games and storytelling combined just would be uh, something that would suit me very well um, because I do have an eye for aesthetics and I do have um, many years of experience with uh, with video games. Um, so yeah, that would be great. Something else I want to do, something I have written a bit, uh, is Call of Cthulhu. It's just something I, I did say earlier today, uh, earlier in this podcast, that I didn't like aliens and did scare me. But I think Call of Cthulhu is just something different for me. Um, and, yeah, I am would love to do more of that.
2: Well, you know the way to do it. You need to get in touch with Modiphius, Clara, because they have an Elder Scrolls tabletop war game uh, coming out. So there you go.
1: Mm. Okay, <laughs> thank
2: you. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the video games you were after, but I know you've got a good relationship with Modiphius, just trying to foster that, you know.
1: Yeah, I do. I write a book for yeah. them currently.
0: <laughs> i appreciate both of you coming on our podcast and sacrificing two hours of your night
2: yeah well you know sacrifice. yeah the sacrifice yeah very good very good that's the name of the story from chicago my night listeners it's the um the, we, we have wit <laughs> yeah, yeah
0: we, <laughs> we try really we have hard. a wit <laughs> we have one wit to rub against each other
2: yeah. <laughs> that's that's a bit if you break it in half <laughs> <break it. laughs> this is getting strange quickly.
0: It's not fun until it's
2: strange. I, I, I concur. I've got, I've got a question for the host. Mm. As a devoted listener of your podcast, I want to know if you have a top three Vampire the Masquerade, not Dark Ages, you've not finished that, top three Vampire the Masquerade source books of all of the ones that you have read. And they don't have to be books I've worked on.
3: It's that's, that's actually really tough that we've reviewed and, and I'll tell you why it's tough. Um, memory. I, I know, I know you, I know you both have to have experienced it. after you just been in the content for so long, it's like, is that the right book I'm saying? Or am I remembering that book chained to that? They both had content in that one, and they updated that one. And that's where my stream of consciousness goes. So you can go first is what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll go first. So, yeah, I I suffer from the same issue to a certain degree. Like, you know, somebody mentions mentions a a ritual online, and I get up, and I have to find five books and go, which book is it in? And it's in all of them. But I think (laughs) for me, probably my... My favorite Vampire the Masquerade original first ed to V20, I would say Kane's Chosen the Black Hand is one of my favorites because I, I love the Black Hand. Mm-hmm. Probably the first edition Sabbat book because it was like so groundbreaking for me as a player when I saw it. I was like, whoa, this is crazy. And um, I gotta say, I really lately have been leaning heavily on Lore of the Clans. That's just... To me, it's like I don't have I don't have the clan books like everybody else does. Like I've I've my collection is much smaller, and lore of the clans has basically exactly what I need at any point in time to impart knowledge to another player or just to refresh.
2: Hmm. Good choices
3: for for interesting reasons. I have to add that um, Chicago by Night, the first edition, I I enjoyed very much, and until recently, and that's not. Uh, that's just to say that used to be my number one, and then I read Chicago by Night second edition, or second edition, pardon me, V5. Uh, my problem with that is that you destroyed my starting point uh, with, with that new book, <laughs> really. Um, getting into as much as I did, and here's why. From loving the book so much and playing countless, countless games, I ran a 10-year chronicle for LARP out of it. Um, getting, I wish I had the fifth edition book, and here's why. Not only does it have great story and content, there's a picture of Ballard in the V5 book that I, and you have to know my love for Horatio Ballard. It's a villain I've played. Like I could play him in my sleep and to see him, I I could almost tell you the scene and it's the content that gets you there. Like if you just saw the pictures, like ah, great photo, no big deal. But in that book, I do feel it captures Chicago in the imagination. And that's why. And I think the first one uh, to have known it so intimately and then to see the V5 version is a,
2: is a dream. Which one of you did I leave a voicemail for that was basically Ballard by way of Kingpin? Wilson Fisk uh, in the Daredevil TV series. I'm sure I sent one of you a message on Facebook, which was Ballard. I
0: believe you sent it to me. I I think I had had, uh, messaged you and asked you about Jason. Yeah, this is the kind of conversations we have. Like, (laughs) hey, you know, uh, in the old book, he's got zero humanity what would you do?
2: Yeah. Like <laughs> introduce him in one session, then push him over the edge. Um, <laughs> now, no, obviously what I generally do with any podcasters that cover the world of darkness is I just leave them random voicemails as, as Horatio Ballard. They don't know who I am. I just, <laughs> um, I did, I'm trying to remember what I did now. It was some kind of, um, You can attack my company, but you cannot attack a barb, at which point he would completely explode and roil over you like the massive mound of flesh that he is, and uh, slam your head in a car door until it explodes like a cantaloupe.
0: If I can find it, I'm going to put it at the end of this podcast.
2: (laughs) Totally. But I I do,
0: uh, I want to let Bob finish, but I feel like I need to thank you and um, some of the folks that are responsible for the artwork in that V5 book, because really what it did, what it did for me was it took my, my black and white imagination and you took it like into HD and seeing some of these characters, like we all know everybody that's read those old Chicago books, those are classic images and they're fantastic for what they were. And, you know, just visual expression has grown. Leaps and bounds since then, and it was just like, oh my god, it's like they're three dimensional. It's like they're right here. I would—that's to me the most impressive part of that book.
2: Oh well, no, I'm—I'm I'm glad you think so because yeah, I'm—I'm I'm very happy with the the artists we we <laughs> hired for Chicago by Night. They all did a superb job. uh Some of them brand new to Onyx Path as well. Some of them brand new to the industry. I know one of them. Uh, Amy Wilkins is. Uh, this was her first book, and she did a lot of those iconic portraits that you see in uh, Chicago by Night, such as I think she did all of the Bruhar as an example, and one of my favourite ones in there is Balthazar, who looks nothing like Balthazar in Chicago by Night, uh, the first edition and second edition of Chicago right. by Night. He, he was basically a an overweight, stetson wearing hit and then you get to Balthazar in V5 Chicago by night and he actually looks menacing now and i don't i i didn't have a problem with the fact that those characters that character looked different because hell, why can't a character groom himself between <laughs> between editions? And maybe he was embraced with a moustache and he religiously shaved it off for the first illustration. But I think, yes, yeah, so many of those characters, you're right, they came to life in, in the V5 version. And I can really sympathise with a lot of those fans that say the best vampire artwork was the black and white artwork. That's what it should be in new editions, I can... Completely see where they're coming from but I can also imagine the amount of criticism we would get White Wolf would have got if V5 had looked exactly the same as all the previous editions of Vampire it, it, had, it had to look different, it had to show an evolution or even a revolution in um, in art style and content and i think chicago and by night really gets it right
1: i have a question for you guys Mm -hmm. too um i can't remember which of you said it but it was about the sacrifice and you saying that normally you're not into pre-written chronicles um and i would just like to know what was different about the sacrifice what what made you actually convert or actually like that type of of writing or part of the book
3: so what goes on when i read a module is that it tells me like, like, I'm not needed as a storyteller. I know that may sound weird, but if I read something that's so educational, like it's, it's a textbook, this is how you do it, we're doing a class for storytelling, I get why that's needed, but being an, an experienced storyteller, I don't need that. So then I'm just focused on the content of the story, and immediately I'm super critical of that. Because if I feel that that content's quickly gone over, or it's something that isn't really relevant cohesively to the book itself, or where I got it from, that's it irritates me because i know players i believe it was uh, yourself that had said you know the the players can get lost right mm-hmm. and that's that's what i want to avoid I, I, that resonates with me so the way sacrifice is set up you know one it's how people go through scene through scene now if i'm an experienced storyteller this is what i get to do i get to look at that scene see how it's going with the story and see how the author thought of it and it's brought it's brought to life And it's still up to me how I'm going to roll that out because I know my players better than anyone else, obviously. So we're going to give them a shot at what that scene's going to be, what it's going to look like, while still holding to a theme. And that makes it easy to put place in a game and your players would never know. You know, that's what I'm all about, that when I'm telling a story in my chronicle, if I take the sacrifice and put it in there, I'm not going to go, all right, everyone, and tonight we start the sacrifice. And so here, chapter one, scene one, here's what's going on. I very much mm-hmm. like it to happen organically.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's... I'm very lucky uh, writing a book that has been covered and and uh, portrayed by so many people now. We have so many podcasts, so many people running The Sacrifice. It's amazing. And the best thing about that is seeing how they interpreted it, how they build it into their group. And and every time I've run The Sacrifice, I've run it a few times now, it ends in completely different ways. And that just... It makes me so happy to see people um, looking at the story with their eyes and how the game can change depending on what group you're playing with and what storyteller is running the game.
0: So I think uh, for me, I'd like to touch on this just briefly as well. Bob was kind of like always my storyteller when I got into role playing playing tabletop vampire and stuff
3: and And,
0: uh yeah (laughs) because i mean i'm I'm a hard player to 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 run for because i can be very disruptive at times because i just i have an idea and i just go with it for me when i decided to storytell i kind of had this idea of like here's the story I want to tell. And that's it. I've read the book. I don't need any other information. I'm writing a story. So like when I would read a module, it would be like I had read all of this material. And a lot of the earlier vampire books, the modules were just kind of like, they they just didn't seem to make sense within the context of what I had just written. You know, there were things like false canes and other weird stuff in older books where it was just, that's not a story I want to tell with what I just read. And so Mm. I avoided them and was uh, often very derisive of them. like These are not good. It doesn't seem like it matches the theme of Vampire the Masquerade or the theme of whatever game. Now, as I'm I'm getting a little bit older and I don't have as much time to comb through every piece of material for every game that I want to play, sometimes I have to fall back on a module. If I sit down with somebody that's experienced and they're like, that's ridiculous, you know, then I, I feel bad because I feel like I've done them a disservice. Everyone's going to come play Shadowrun, but the Shadowrun module is terrible. I've run a terrible game for you. I'm sorry I wasted your time. So when I get the opportunity to read a story or an event or a game or a chronicle in a book and it's good, I want to run that. I really just think it's quality
1: of of the
0: story and show and don't tell, right? Let me explore.
1: That makes sense. Yeah.
3: So and to uh, mention uh, one other, because I don't think, I think in top three, we share that. Kane's Chosen uh, was Mm -hmm. was a good book. uh, It still is. Because uh, mm-hmm. it holds relevance, right? It stands the test of time for that genre, for that time and place for it. Um, the other one is the Encyclopedia Vampirica. Because not only did it include... Like, here's the thing. I love Beckett's Shahad Diary. I want to state that. When I looked at um, the Vampire Encyclopedia, when I first got it, a lot of folks were using it as the end-all, be-all truth book. If any. You know, what is it you want to know about? Let me flip to the page. Here it is. Mm. This is exactly what happened.
0: Before the, uh, the internet was right. a big thing.
3: And there was a lot of a lot of that going on, but if you read the whole book and saw what it was, it's an in-game tool, right? It's that's what it's designed to be. You're still in charge of what goes on with that book, but it also gave them an idea of research, what that's like, you know, what uh, what folks who, who who write about the material must go through, and it opened up my eyes to a different type of storytelling, instead of it being just you know, we sit down, we run through a scene this this week and we're done. It allowed you to see just how quickly you can thread together on one one scene chart which is what i do um we can just put down all these scenes can happen and even the one leave that room wiggle room for the players to go anywhere but they're really still part of the material and an easy reference book that you can take or leave what you see in it and it wasn't written where they said oh by the way we're just you know leaving this open-ended for you to decide at home it's literally written from a vampiric perspective of collecting material saying who knows how much of this is true but this is what I've seen and collected so far. And it encourages people to do the same. Every player I've talked to about that book, who, you, you know, start talking to them about it in depth, have had profound discussions about what's gone on and have wanted to buy other books.
2: Yeah, I know. I loved uh, Encyclopedia Vampirica. It was the, the most expensive book in the game store, uh, for Vampire at least. Um, I remember being very attracted to its red ribbon and silver edged pages that none of the other vampire books had, uh, probably because I didn't see the uh, revised edition core rulebook in their limited edition set. Um, But yeah, the only flaw I ever found when Encyclopedia Vampirica was the margin notes not actually lining up with the extracts they're referring to. (laughs) Something went horribly wrong in the layout of that book. Where the margin notes end up two pages misplaced, and so it looks like uh, Uh, Lucita is referring to Cappadocius when in fact she's referring to Cain. And you're thinking, what? What's she talking about? Cappadocius is the father of all vampires? Uh, But yeah, (laughs) that's a minor quibble. I have to agree on that one. It's, It's a very important book to me as well.
0: Thank you both for coming on the podcast. It was a lot of fun having you and talking about The Sacrifice and Chicago by Night and Red Moon Roleplaying.
1: Thank you.
0: Well, thank you very much for having
1: us. It was very enjoyable.
0: Thank you, everybody, for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and the interview. We hope it was informative and entertaining and all of that fun stuff. We'll be back next week with another Dark Ages review. In the meantime, go to redmoonroleplaying.com and check out The Sacrifice – Episode two is available as of this recording, so give it a listen, and uh, until next week.
2: Yeah, my my take on Horatio Ballard is quite similar. I mean, yours is, uh, your guys, you guys have got a very Churchill Horatio Ballard. Mine is more, I guess, uh, Jason Newbury might insult Horatio
3: Ballard, but he will not insult the Ballard family!
2: At which point he would crush Jason Newbury's head or a ghoul's head in a car door, I assume.
0: Hey, folks, this is Nathan from 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade. If you enjoyed the podcast you just listened to, think about supporting us. For more podcasts, art, video, and gaming, go to utilitymuffinlabs.com. Follow our podcast on Twitter at 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook under our Utility Muffin Labs name, and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade. Thank you again for your support. Utility Muffin Labs, consistently rated adequate.